to the Digiday Podcast. My name is Tim Peterson. I am the Senior Media Editor at Digiday. And I'm Keely Barber, Media Editor at Digiday. All right. So, Kayla, we have a, another special episode. We're doing these more often, which I like. Um, and so last week, we had the Digiday Publishing Summit in Key Biscayne, Florida. And one of the sessions that we did there was a live podcast recording with Sheil Shah, who is the SVP of Consumer Products and Partnerships at Hearst Magazines. I thought it was a pretty great conversation. What do you think, Kaylee? Yeah, it was a really fun conversation too. I mean, these live podcasts are always really cool because obviously we get to talk with someone uh, in a public setting. It, normally these things happen over Zoom, but it was also really great to kind of hear feedback afterwards about what the audiences thought of the session. Um, but yeah, the the bulk of the conversation was really about Hearst's commerce strategy and looking ahead to Q4, how they're looking to build this entire marketplace up uh, for online shopping across their brands. But really, the process of how they've unraveled their commerce strategy from affiliate to you know branded shops to product licensing to DTC even. like They've really been investing heavily in different kind of commerce um, or iterations of commerce businesses for a publisher, which is pretty unique because in a lot of cases, and I wrote this, you know, just, I guess it would be last week when this episode goes live, but not all publishers, you know, commerce initiatives are taking off the way that they intended them to. Um, So it, it was an interesting conversation because we, you know, talk about the high level of evolution of commerce at Hearst, but also you like there were some really great questions you asked about like the nitty gritty of how uh, you know deal terms are come to with with retailers and things like that. So it was a really interesting conversation. What was your kind of biggest takeaway or you know interesting point that you walked away with? Yeah, I mean, I just like that we had some news um, in the conversation where Shield talked about how in Q4 they're going to start testing letting uh, third party you know, retailers or merchants sell products through. Hearst's own marketplace. And um, and mm-hmm. so, yeah, that it was hard for me to like have my mind on anything else throughout the conversation because I just wanted to find out more information about how those deals are structured. And then, so we were able to get into that in the conversation with Sheil. So I think that was, that was really helpful for me. I imagine probably pretty helpful for anyone else who's running their own commerce marketplace or is considering doing so. Yeah, yeah, definitely one of my, you know, top five conversations from the year for the podcast, but let's get into it. Cool. Welcome to Thank the you. Digiday podcast. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on stage. Thank you for having me. Awesome. All right. So I think a good way to kick it off is your title is SVP of Consumer Products and Partnerships at Hearst. Um what does that all cover? I feel like that could be a very broad. Yeah, um, it is very broad. Uh, but I would say my job is to um, accelerate change in our business, specifically through uh, revenue diversification. Um, so yeah, um, as part of that, I oversee all of our platform partnerships um, with the social platforms and other publisher partners of ours. Um, I oversee our digital subscriptions and memberships business. Um, as well as our e-commerce um, activities. So, like e-commerce, I feel like for different media companies, commerce businesses can take different forms. There can be, you know, affiliate commerce where it's just affiliate links and articles, and then sub-publishers have like 
full-blown commerce shops that they also operate. Yep. What's the scope of Hearst's commerce business? Yeah, um, I think that's a good way of kind of characterizing the spectrum. So we do kind of end-to-end -end, um, both of those. I would say affiliate commerce, uh, it's definitely evolved since the days of drop links into content. I think you know publishers can do that, and you'll see a pretty uh, quick return on that investment of work to just drop those affiliate links in and make those relationships. But I think more mature publishing companies have taken it much further through strategic relationships with brands and um, you know, thinking about how to create this type of content that will not only serve a reader, but also um, drive revenue for the business. And so I think as that business has grown, there's been more and more thought into how do we do this strategically, both to serve our customers better and also to, to serve our business. And I think, yes, on the other side of the, the side of the spectrum where you go from affiliate, which is definitely the unlimited product catalog really online and a smaller percentage of each of those sales that you do help facilitate to the kind of direct-to-consumer e-commerce business that many media companies have um, tried and failed and succeeded, and, and, and according to your piece yesterday. Um, and so for that piece of it, it is definitely, you know, higher margin, you know, you could say 100% of the revenue comes in the doors of the media company. However, of course, your product catalog is much smaller. You're not going to be able to list and sell everything that there is online direct to consumer. And so I think there's that, that spectrum of product catalog from big to small, and then also from kind of percentage of revenue per, um, per transaction from small to big. And finding a way to balance in between there, I think, is this big white space that Publishers and even other companies have really tried to navigate even brands themselves where you've seen a lot of direct brands go out and try to build you know, physical, tangible assets that are like magazines, right? And I think Away Luggage did that where inside of your bag you'll get a piece. And I think people know that content really does help drive that type of commerce and help build your brand for that repeat purchase. Um, for us, you know, we are looking at that white space in a variety of different ways, um, one in which... Um, our direct shops was really the phase one. So you mentioned like the, those shops. So we have 20 branded shops. So at Hearst Magazines, we have a house of brands, some that are in the shelter side of things, home and shelter, some in um, health and fitness, beauty, uh, fashion, luxury, um, and, and, and runs the gamut. And we have branded shops for each of those brands. In those shops, we sell product direct to consumer that we develop in-house and manufacture, fulfill, customer service, the platform we built in, inside of, of the organization. End-to-end, -end, uh, our team does everything. And we've been able to grow that into a successful business. But where do you kind of take it next? And I think that next phase for our direct-to-consumer e-commerce business is in exactly that kind of white space, where how can we expand our product catalog beyond the things that we make direct-to-consumer on behalf of our brands, but also have a slightly uh, more skin in the game on a, on a per transaction basis where it's more skin in the game than the affiliate business, but of course less than when we're selling our, our own product. Um, and we are looking to expand those direct-to-consumer e-commerce shops into marketplaces. So starting in the holidays, brands that we write about and that our editors love will be able to be considered to join our marketplace and we'll be able to sell their products in addition to our own um, on our branded shops. So, you know, brands that Men's Health loves and writes about all the time, whether that's in fitness, health, nutrition, um, brands that Oprah loves, as you've all seen, I'm sure you're all familiar with Oprah's favorite things, and we run Oprah's e-commerce business. 
when you think about all of those Oprah's favorite thing brands, you could see a potential for where those Oprah's favorite things could potentially fit inside of our platform and make sense that the Oprah shop would ha have these products. Um, and so that's kind of the vision. And in, and in Q4, closer to the holidays, we're launching our beta of the marketplace with a handful of brands. Um, and as we go into 2023, we're looking to expand that marketplace catalog. So I think that's one, um, you could say experiment, something we're really bullish on and we're gonna invest in continuously because we think it's important to our future. But I think that's one example of how you can play in that space in between owned and operated full stack and an affiliate business. And, and I think that I've seen publishers kind of trying out different things. I know there's a lot of technology out there that's getting a lot of venture money to figure out how do we you know, bridge content and commerce and make it scalable. So, um, so yeah, it's a very exciting place. That's where I spend most of my time, I'd say, is really thinking through kind of that, that spectrum and how can we build a future e-commerce business on behalf of our brands. Got it. So there's obviously a lot of different ways that you're playing in commerce, but holistically, I think, you know, when we opened the show, one of the challenges in the state of the industry that we went over was this kind of hitting a plateau with commerce revenue. And I think some publishers are seeing not as much, maybe not as quick growth in that area. Um, again, whether that's like returning to in-person shopping mm -hmm. or um, I think, you know, in the working group this morning, someone was talking about, um, you know, Google not really surfacing uh, their commerce content as much. Um, you know, and even in the platforms, I think, you know, BuzzFeed had called out that Facebook wasn't surfacing their commerce uh, yeah. content. So there's these impacts to commerce revenue kind of throughout the industry. What's the, I guess, current state of commerce revenue, your commerce business, um, I guess, this year, like looking compared to earlier in the pandemic? Yeah. I mean, I'd add to the headwinds that you mentioned, um, and you kind of touched on a little bit, but just to go into them as far as I think what we see and I think what the probably rest of the industry is seeing is um, macro, people are spending less time shopping online because they want to get out there and just kind of experience shopping as it was pre-pandemic. We'll see if that kind of continues. I'm, I'm quite bullish on e-commerce in the long run, as I bet most people are. But I think in this time, we are seeing that less and less people are shopping in comparison to a banner year for many of us, which I would say was 20 to 2020 and 2021. I think on top of that, you have um, a lot of the, the privacy uh, protection coming in from Apple and, and the impact that has on advertising for many of these direct-to-consumer brands. So perhaps it's not so much that people are spending less online, but it's also harder for these brands to reach their consumers. I think many of them rely heavily on Google and Facebook to reach that audience. And with the pressures that they're seeing on both of those um, channels, um, I think it's, it's actually an advantage, maybe a tailwind for publishers like ourselves, where they have to explore other, other channels and, and figuring out how to sell their things. Direct brands previously had said that, you know, selling direct to consumer and having that relationship with the customer is core to our business. But I think staying alive is more important than that. And so they are going to have to explore other channels and hence kind of going back to my original point around the marketplace is why I think brands are going to be even more open to saying, hey, let's join you know, Hearst's marketplace. Yes, that means that they own the customer and they own the relationship. However, we need to figure out how we actually grow our business outside of the realms of Facebook and Google. Um, and then just kind of the broader 
recession that you know we're heading into is I think impacting commerce uh, across the board outside of just media and publishing, but but um, the the whole landscape. And so for Hearst in particular, I mean, yeah, we we probably are seeing some of that impact. But when we look at our numbers, I think coming out of 2020 and 2021, we looked at that those banner years as an opportunity for us to reinvest in the future of our business. Um, and I think that that's obviously great for me as someone who's really trying to figure out what that diversified revenue mix looks like for Hearst Magazines in the long term. And so in 2020 and 2021, we invested significantly in our affiliate business. We obviously invested in technology and the e-commerce team to build a marketplace, seeing that eventually Facebook and Google would be run dry for these brands. Um, did not expect a recession on, on our, you know, on the way to a recession, but obviously I think you, you always are going to end up tapping out of a platform at some point or a marketing channel at some point. Um, and so we've seen growth across the board. I know there are some companies that have come out and said that their commerce business, which mostly for publishers is affiliate commerce, has been down year over year. Again, we're comparing to a, a phenomenal year for media companies and affiliate commerce. So I don't think that that's a um, a disastrous place to be. It may not kind of continue in that direction, but Hearst is not seeing that. I would say Hearst is year over year up, even in comparison right. to a banner year. Um, when you look at just kind of the amount of commerce that our media brands has facilitated, um, we've surpassed over a billion dollars in gross merchandising value, right? So that is, I think, sh shows the kind of size that of our affiliate business and sh I think shows the power of trusted brands and an editorial organization that knows how to serve their readers. Um, and then on our direct-to-consumer e-commerce side, we are growing year over year, um, hence why we want to in invest into broadening our product catalog. Um, we, our goal is to hit 500,000 direct-to-consumer transactions on our platform this year. I think we'll, we'll hit that number easily. Um, you mentioned the other day in the, in the piece, but I'll just mention it here too. But our e-commerce conversion rates are higher than the industry average. I think industry average is two, two and a half percent. We're more in the three, three and a half, four percent. Um, and, and I think that's a product of just the credibility and trust that comes with our brands. You know, you're not buying it from a direct brand that you may have never heard of or just saw an Instagram ad of. You're buying it from a brand that you, has been around for 100 plus years, whether that's men's health, good housekeeping, Oprah Daily. And so I think that kind of decision-making process for a customer is much easier when you're buying it from a trusted brand that knows this space in particular. And that's where we try to aim. We're not, we're not going to sell like, like hot sauce on our you know, good housekeeping shop or our uh, Oprah shop that's coming from us. That's not what we know. That's not what we're going to go make. But we know there are some great brands out there that make great hot sauce. And if that's what our consumers want, if that's what our readers want, then we want to make sure that we're able to merchandise that in our platform. Right now, it'd be through affiliate because we don't sell it direct. But I'm hoping that we can find a partner who wants to join the marketplace, and then we will be able to sell that direct. You mentioned $1 billion in gross merchandising value. So that's we sold a billion dollars worth of stuff. Other people's stuff. How much of that is, what's the net revenue on that? Um, I can't talk about the net revenue on that, but it's the typical, what you'd expect in an affiliate business, right? So that's all affiliate, the mentioning that I mentioned. So if you take a media publisher and you say, okay, how much of that would you generally make for a large media organization like ourselves, strategic relationships we have with brands, the types of publishing brands that we have, you take the um, affiliate rate of whatever that is, and you What's can come the, up usually with the revenue. range? Sorry? What's usually the range of the affiliate? I would say affiliate in just the overall spectrum of affiliate to direct. Like I mentioned, the direct is probably somewhere of, um, 
100%, right? We're selling the product direct to consumer, so it's 100% of revenue, and then it kind of goes down from there. Marketplace would be a little less than that. Of course, we have a partner, and then in, in affiliate, it's even lesser than that, so you have a partner. I think average industry range would be somewhere in the 10 to 20%. Okay. Yeah. So I guess getting into like the DTC side of it, right? So you've had years of developing products for your brands. Um, I think you know a couple years ago I covered Cosmo's uh, perfume and wine that was created. Um, how do you decide which products you feel comfortable owning as like a, a DTC product and creating it either in-house or you know having to work on like the distribution, the storage, the like all of that. Like you mentioned, there's a lot of kind of overhead with that. Where do you kind of decide it's worth doing it and where do you kind of draw the line as this isn't going to be for us? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and it's a complicated answer, but I would say a good place to start is just kind of a category analysis. Uh, what are the types of things that our readers are buying via our affiliate business from our content? What are the types of products that ring true to our brand identity and our, and our ethos? And then kind of taking that overhead question in overhead comment to light on each of those cat content category, product categories. So for example, furniture, high overhead, uh, manufacturing expertise required, uh, warehousing, fulfillment, quite a challenge. Not something that we're the experts of. Uh, we know what we're great at, and that is creating content, reaching audiences, and even to, to some degree serving them beyond media. And that's kind of where we play in manufacturing, whether that's Oprah Daly has a, a journal that she's come out with, a planner, I'm sorry, where we're on a month-to-month -month basis. She and the Oprah Daily team will help you um, bring more in uh, intention to your life so that hopefully you can live a, the life that you want after 12 months of practicing that with Oprah and her team. Those are the types of areas where we feel that's very close to our core and we can create that, manufacture that, fulfill that. Um, however, you know, furniture, I would put on the complete opposite side. Perfume is a great example as well. We are not um, going to make perfume in-house. You know, we want to make sure that the best product possible is in our readers' hand, our consumers' hands, especially if our trademark brands are on them. And so, if there's a category that we feel that we are not a the expert to manufacture and b would be challenging for us from a kind of fulfillment customer experience standpoint, that's something where we would rather go down the licensing route. And as you mentioned, we've done tons of those, whether that's Delish kitchenware, good housekeeping kitchenware available in retail. Um, Cosmos Furniture is a huge, huge, hugely successful line for us on, at Wayfair. Um, the perfume is available at Ulta. And so there's a variety of those products which we did that type of category analysis and looked at overhead, kind of core to our ethos, and then tried to figure out, okay, which ones fit best in licensing, which ones fit best in direct, and maybe some which just fit best in covering them editorial and monetizing via affiliate. And I imagine like you're looking at the performance of affiliate links or like which products are really popping when it comes to affiliate yeah. links to then form what you want to be selling directly yourselves. Is it as straightforward as, okay, these are the top selling products or the top performing products in affiliate links. Those are the ones we should now start looking at and considering for selling or are there other metrics or combinations of metrics that you use to evaluate, make that evaluation? Um. It's not so much metrics. I mean, I think that's the like nice and sexy answer to say is that like, oh, then we look at different data to figure out beyond the affiliate metric, which is the one that we want to move forward with. I think this comes down to just more instinct and understanding of your audience a bit, as well as the understanding of what it would take to 
create and fulfill a product like this. So, for example, you know, it, when we see Cosmo, you could imagine they sell tons of beauty products. It's a very competitive category as well. So I would say that's like another thing that goes into our minds is to say, okay, well, it goes gangbusters on affiliate. Doesn't mean necessarily we want to explore licensing or direct. We might just decide that's not a category that we want to play in because it's super competitive. I think also if we really, really love a particular product in a category and we love covering it and we love that we, we feel that it is the best in category and it serves a customer really well, then it doesn't feel um, right for us to like enter that space. We, we are doing well there. Our readers love a particular SKU that's out there from another brand that they trust. And so that also just doesn't feel like something that is, is necessary for us. I'll give you an example. Like athleisure is core to men's and women's health, right? As, as that's kind of expanded beyond the health and fitness enthusiast as a customer, it's really now kind of just mass market. Anybody and everybody wears athleisure. I'm, I'm sure people are wearing it in the crowd now. And um, that is something where you have color, size, materials. Everybody has their own preferences. And there's also tried and true brands out there from Lululemon and others that do a really great job. And so if you're men's or women's health, I think you look at that category and you say, there's enough there. The, the, the consumer need is being met. For us to enter that category wouldn't feel authentic as well as it would kind of... Um, not, it would kind of clash a little bit with like the, the, the products that we actually do love in market. Um, so we try to identify consumer needs that are not being met, use that affiliate data as signal, not necessarily like a copy and paste. And looking specifically at like DTC, so the products that you've manufactured entirely, you distribute entirely, is that limited to more like the, the paper category, so like the planner that you mentioned, um, cookbooks, I know we've talked about in the past, like are you kind of limiting it to that given your expertise in, you know, manufacturing and distributing magazines for, you know? Yeah, years? I'd say our more, more successful products are in that category. Um, I wouldn't say it's in the paper category, but I'd say it's in kind of like service via editorial and that can be done through a variety of different ways. Initially, it was done through books, right? Like most publishing media brands have books, whether they sell them direct or in trade. Um, I think we've expanded from that kind of uh, lane into more like um, service products. So the formats are just different, and we want you to have like that daily practice. I mentioned the Oprah Planner. Um, in this fall, we're going to be launching Oprah like daily cards where it'll come in a really nice um, linen box where every morning you wake up and you can pull out a card and it'll either have like a goal for the day, an intention, a quote. And so it's just lending that same editorial expertise that we have and figuring out different ways in which we can actually help our readers um, with whatever that kind of core principle is for our particular brand. So, so I'd say we're, we're definitely venturing out of that lane of simply like premium editorial products. We of course have a branded merch business where we do the sweatshirts and t-shirts and all of the above. Not a big business for us, not something that's super exciting. Um, you know, we thought that it would be nice to have and so it's really in the stores more so for our, those types of, um, I call kind of, merchandising moments, you know, you wake up the morning after a piece goes viral and you have a sweatshirt that ha is associated with that and it's kind of nice to have, but there, there's no reason not to have it in your shop really, as long as it m matches kind of the brand's um, identity. But um, so we've done other, other categories. You'll see like we've done a partnership with Corksicle, which I think is a great brand um, when it comes to 
mugs and canteens and things kind of similar to um, Yeti. And so Oprah Daily and Corksicle have a partnership. And so we merchandise and warehouse and fulfill all of that product direct to consumer. Um, so I would say we've expanded, but I think the marketplace is really gonna, what's going to allow for us to really expand our product catalog beyond that. And how do you think of attaching your brands to like the, a non-editorial product? So like Men's Health, uh, they still might, but like they would publish the like best foods to buy at the grocery store kind of thing. And I would buy that because like I was trying to be healthy and like, yeah. okay, I trust Men's Health to tell me that. If Men's Health was like, here's the... Looks like it's trail. working. Yeah, it's I, working. I don't know about that. If Men's Health was like, here's our trail mix, like buy this, I might be like, why would I think you'd be good yeah. at like putting together trail mix. Then there are examples like Costco. If I go into Costco, I'm not going to buy a Costco branded thing, but Kirkland Signature, okay, I don't know this brand, but I only see them at Costco, but they seem like they know how to make food. I don't necessarily know that that's Costco's brand. Are you creating like commerce specific? Like, like private label? labels? Yeah. We have exper uh, kind of experimented with that in the past. It was kind of a thesis that I had inside of the company and perhaps it was an incorrect thesis, but or maybe it was our approach, but where we felt that if we launched a new brand inside of the portfolio, that it would have more opportunity in the marketplace to not be compartmentalized into thinking of it as simply a men's health or a women's health or an Oprah product. Perhaps that could open the doors up to anybody and everybody and not associate itself with a magazine brand or that it's a licensed product, because many folks may not realize that, no, this is actually coming from us directly. Um, that, that was like a, a self-rolling yoga mat that we made two and a half years ago under the brand backslash fit. And it, we found that it's possible, you can do it, but the energy that has to go into building a new brand is so massive that it took away from us focusing on what we're best at. And, and so, yes, if we had reallocated our resources into building a new brand and then a catalog behind that brand, it not only took so much energy um, that we didn't feel like the returns were worth it, but it also kind of distracted us from actually building our own brands. And I think that it was a great exercise and experiment, and I'm glad that we did that. Um, but I think there's much more potential into nixing that trail mix category, because it is not, to your point, when a c consumer looks at that trail mix and says, why would I want men's health trail mix versus Costco by Kirkland? Most people don't know. I think it's a great example. Um, don't enter that category, right? Talk about the trail mix that men's health loves, and it doesn't have to be ours. But enter categories where somebody's going to see men's health on the label and think, you know what? It's this mat, yoga mat, for example, or it's the women's health yoga mat. I don't know this brand. I know that brand, and so I'm going to purchase the women's health yoga mat. And so those are the types of things that we also think about. And, and again, to my earlier point, if there's a leader in that category that we feel is making great product, then that comparison for a consumer is an easy one to make. I would go with the, the former. But if there is a category where we feel like is somewhat commoditized and our brand can bring something unique and credible to that category, then why not? And kind of digging into the shops business too, because we talked about how um, much effort went into creating the actual tech of it all. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like for some publishers who have explored marketplaces or, you know, owned and operated shops, the story I wrote earlier this week, it's yeah. not 
necessarily a successful business model right off the bat. But I do think that there's a lot of um, lift that needs to go into it. And we talked about this a little bit um, for that piece. But what was the process of getting those shops off the ground? And I know you're still um, working to make it a, a more cohesive, yeah. uh, larger scale marketplace. But getting the actual shop built and operating, what was that process like? And how long did it take before it was a... Like out. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I've been at Hearst for almost seven years. Um, I'd say I started evangelizing for this idea um, like six months into my time there. Um, a year and a half in, we purchased Rodale, which was a publishing house that owned great service brands, Men's Health, Women's Health, Runner's World, Bicycling, and Prevention. We brought them into the portfolio, and I feel like that was a turning point in our e-commerce journey where those brands had really deep communities, had a really deep connection to their reader, and uh, allowed for us to really bring this vision to life. And so when we saw the type of e-commerce activity that was happening for those brands and the number of experiments that the Rodale business had, had you know, been successful with in their time as an independent business, um, we were able to kind of bolt that onto Hearst Magazine's, one, the portfolio, but just all of their learnings um, and kind of uh, accelerate that thesis that I had where we could build our own e-commerce business in-house. Um, the path to building it all, the tech inside of our organization, um, was a challenge. It, I would say we started building the technology and then the, to the day that it was you know, launched to the public where you could go on and, and purchase something, it'd be close to two years of development um, work. Um, and so, yeah, it, it is not easy. But I do think that um, all the experiments and kind of tests, and I would encourage everybody to test in this space, a, a lot of why some of those organizations failed, and I'm not speaking from firsthand experience in those particulars, but over the last six years, our experiments, I think when you rely on a lot of third parties to do a lot of the work for you, um, it ends up being challenging because um, their product roadmap doesn't align directly with your business. And so they have a number of different clients and they're trying to figure out how do we be successful as a partner in building our, our company and getting our next round of funding. And when you have these kind of intricate, complex problems inside of your business, when you're trying to build tech for it, it's, it's really challenging. They built like a, a white labeled solution that you can bolt onto your sites and allow for transaction to happen. Like that sounds cool until you actually realize that your tech stack is different, your CMS operates differently, the way to fulfill magazines is quite challenging. You know, some magazines are time-based, so you know, uh, they're monthly magazines. Some, some are issue-based, where there's just six issues a year, and they come when they come, based on our editorial schedule. And so systems that can manage all of that, even just subscription businesses, you have to have some sophisticated back-end technology to make all of that happen. Um, and so when we want to modernize all of that in addition to sell product direct to consumer, you're going to have a long journey. And, you know, it's really exciting that we are at that point and now we can kind of build for the future. Um, but it, it is a long, long process. And, and I totally understand that it's not for everybody. We are lucky enough to have 20 plus brands in our portfolio where when you think of it as a platform that supports all 20, it makes sense. If I had one media brand, would I have gone down that journey that we just went? No, it, would, it wouldn't have worked and it wouldn't have been a profitable endeavor. Um, there's just too much investment required. 
I want to get back to that, but I've been like biting my tongue out. I want to really talk about this beta you all are doing in Q4 yeah. with bringing in external, you know, merchants to be selling through your marketplace. Yeah. How how are those deals arranged? Is it you're buying the products in wholesale from those companies, or you're guaranteeing them will drive X number of sales for you? Neither. Okay. Um, but it's a pretty traditional model. So the ways in which we're thinking about it, and I think about it more from like, how is this mutually beneficial to both sides? So one, I have no interest in taking on inventory, more inventory of product, especially as you, you know, the vision for the marketplace is to have dozens, if not hundreds of brands on the, on the marketplace. And if that's the idea, then there's no way that I'm gonna be able to scale it with taking on inventory for each of these brands. Um, but I know many of those conversations happen where initially a brand is going to say, well, you know, Target took on this many, Walmart took on this many, how many are you taking on? And I think there's that, that other side of it is, well, I don't want to take your inventory, but I will guarantee some amount of sales for you. And we're not doing that either. And um, my, my kind of thinking and the team's thinking is much more, we want to kind of test and see how things go. And so for us to go to a brand and guarantee a, a number of sales, I think that would be quite... Um, detrimental to the next brand because we're always then going to be chasing how do I hit that partner's number and then this partner's number and then this partner's number and partner 15 is going to be challenged because now we already have to meet all of these guarantees. How am I going to meet yours? I'd much rather get as many SKUs into the product catalog as possible, figure out which ones are resonating with our audience, and then go back to those brands and start figuring out how do we build a, a kind of strategic business together. Um, if you create a marketplace where the lift for a, the barrier to entry is quite low, then I don't think brands are going to ask that much of you. And so from our side, it was how do we make this as easy as possible for a brand to onboard and um, merchandise their products alongside the rest of our catalog? And if we can make that almost seamless, of course, there's some work necessary, but if we can make that almost seamless, it makes it a very easy decision for the, the decision makers at that company to make. And on our side, our jobs is to make sure the product gets to the right user. And if it does, what do those conversion rates look like? And if those conversion rates are high, I want to have follow-up conversations with those brands. And if they're not, then totally understand if they want to move elsewhere and f focus their efforts. Honestly, there doesn't require much effort to it. So I, that, that was kind of my goal too, was if you keep it low lift, it's just always on, right? It's not something that you're looking to to stand your business up on, but it's also not something that's going to hurt you if you just keep your product there. Um, I think it's no, not too dissimilar from when every brand today is now thinking, okay, I need to be everywhere. It's very similar to the, the content uh, kind of idea of four or five years ago, was I can't just be on my sites, I need to get my content everywhere. And we did, and kind of saw how that has evolved. And now I think the D2C brands are thinking, man, this direct-to-consumer thing was great, and we built a nice business, but you know, our VCs are asking for us to go 4X, and our, my Facebook CPAs have tripled, what am I gonna do? I think they have to knock on the seller marketplace at Walmart and the seller marketplace on Amazon, and hopefully the marketplace at Hearst to say, can you help me get in front of an audience? Can you help put my product next to a brand like yours and, and really give it the trust and credibility that you all provide. Um, so I think that that's, when you look at the state of the landscape, there are much less obligations that we need to have in order for a brand to want to join, but we are not taking on any inventory. We are not guaranteeing any type of sales. This is much more of a join our platform in beta and learn with us 
and be next to great, credible media brands that um, you know and your customers trust, and let's see what we can do together. So in terms of like the mechanics of it, um, I have a trail mix brand, because we'll just yep. stay on that example. It's snack time for me. Um, I list my trail mix on your marketplace. Kaylee goes on, she sees my trail mix, Tim makes good trail mix, <laughs> clicks to purchase it, and basically like you pass on like that sale information to me and I'm in charge of fulfillment. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. And you had mentioned, um, you know, the draw of a marketplace like this is being next to, um, you know, the Hearst brands, right? Like that's the content side of it. But I'm curious how else content ties in because for a lot of publishers that I speak to about the marketplaces that they've created or the shops that they cre they've created, to a degree it's like bringing in affiliate content in all one area and having that editorial voice like directly on the product page or, you know, finding a way to include reviews, um, you know, tests and things like that by the editors. Mm -hmm. How does the content piece tie into the shops that you're operating now, but then your overall like marketplace, um, you know, plans? Yeah, um... I think to your original point where it was very like bring commerce to our CMS and bring commerce as close to the editorial page as possible so that that coverage of XYZ product drives directly click to sale. Um, I think we've, everybody is experimenting in that, in that vein and I think the jury's still out whether that you know, consumer journey can, can work really well and is advantageous to the, the consumer themselves and not just to the media business. Um, I'm taking a different approach, and, I, and we're taking both, right? Hearst is definitely looking at that space, too. I think our approach is more how do I bring kind of the affiliate voice and, and um, brand um, credibility to the shops. So, you know, one is obviously it's a branded shop, right? So you can go to the Oprah Daily shop, you can go to the Men's Health shop, and it feels, it feels like you're inside of a branded experience. I think some of the points you mentioned are, are also really good ones. You know, a lot of media brands have a business where they are... Uh, licensing out their quotes, they're licensing out their awards out to brands to use on their packaging or brands to use in their respective marketing. I think you have Brights Media here, um, and they do that. And so um, why can't we bring some of that on to our, to our shops? Or you had mentioned, like, hey, what about a review that you might have written on, on a product, and you actually now sell that product? Can you put that review on your product detail page? I, I would do that. Um, because it's going to help the consumer make a decision. It's not to sway them one way or another other than educate them more about the product that they're about to buy. They clearly feel some kind of way about, um, you know, the Oprah Daily brand and her voice, and they trust her. If she said something about this product, why not bring it onto the, onto the product detail page? So it's less bring the product onto the editorial page, and it's actually a little bit, I think, as I'm thinking about it now, is bringing the editorial over to the product page um, so yeah, that's kind of... And that would be like an added licensing fee for the uh, yeah. brand, no? No, I, I was referencing that as like that has value, right? And that clearly helps drive transaction. That is why direct brands will license pull quotes and brands. I mean, everybody's seen the Instagram ad where it's like, oh, seen in Vogue or seen in Men's Health or seen, right? Those things are primarily licensed by those brands to put them onto their ads or their packaging or whatever it may be. They do that because they feel that it has value in that conversion process and hopefully will drive more efficient CPAs. Um, I think that there's a similar principle on whether if, if that, those things were on our product detail pages. But no, the brands, it's our marketplace. It's our job to find the audience and make the conversion happen. So they're not paying for that license. Got 
So selling the third-party products through mm -hmm. your marketplace. Like there's that information that you're then getting from the customer, name, credit card number, probably their address, the email address. That can be very valuable for you, also valuable for whoever's selling that product. And I imagine you're passing all of that information to them, but what's, are there restrictions? Because my trail mix brand may be like, great, I want to get this information, but Hearst, I'm worried about you using this information to help planters reach my customers. Yeah. What's the conversation around so, all of data? Just to kind of jump in for a second, we do not send any type of PII to partners, right? So the credit card and all of that isn't going anywhere. That's all safe and secure, and my legal team would kill me if that was at all what about even like part the, of the physical address or the email address? So the fulfillment information has to be sent to a partner to, send, to actually fulfill the process of purchasing a product. And so that type of stuff, sure, but those, those things are not marketable. Like that is part of any any dropship relationship out there that like you're not marketing to that customer at all. That's definitely not um, accepted through the terms of the agreement. However, for fulfillment purposes, yes, you do have to have the mailing address of the particular individual so that you could ship them their, you know, beauty products or whatever it may be. As far as on the Hearst side of things, I, I think you're mentioning is like, well, what what can Hearst do with that information? So. We're not doing anything with like the specific PII of somebody's credit card information or anything like that. That's all safe and secure and, and stored somewhere that I don't even have any visibility into because it's not really not important to kind of how we grow the business. What about the email address? Yeah, so, the, so you do register with Hearst Magazines when you do purchase through our, our shops, right? And so what do you do with that authenticated user? So my goal is to hopefully add as much benefit to having being registered with Hearst Magazines. And so if, I, if the, your behavior on our shops show that you really like men's health and you like particular products, to make sure that we're pushing that type of product to you so that you have um, an, another chance to shop with us, right? Whether that's through um, Facebook custom audiences or if that's through newsletters or email, all of the above. And we haven't really gotten a chance to talk too much about, but like, I think our memberships business is really exciting, and I think there's a lot of opportunity where you can kind of see both of those businesses helping lift each other. Um, and so I don't know if, you, if I could speak to the memberships business a bit, but um, what is memberships at Hearst? So obviously we are a, a huge, uh, historically we've been a huge me uh, magazine media company, um, and we have print subscriptions in the, in the millions over, over the last hundreds of years. And we're looking to modernize that business and add more consumer value to our, our subscription business, right? So you've seen the New York Times and other large news organizations be quite successful with digitizing those subscriptions and having a digital relationship with a customer. Um, we believe there's a lot of potential there, not only to drive diversified revenue for Hearst magazines and have a direct relationship with the customer, but also hopefully one day to support our ads business. And I think to Tim's earlier point, you know, having first-party data and having registered users allow for you to understand them much better and hopefully create a better digital experience on your websites, whether that's through dynamic content experiences or just better ad experiences. And so I think the more that you own, the more that you're able to leverage for building your business. Um, and so we are building up our memberships business. Um, I think I, I, had, I, I may have not mentioned, but year over year, um, we're probably, we've already exceeded 2022's, uh, 2021, I'm sorry, 2021 revenue, um, full year revenue already this year. Um, what was our, the 2022 revenue? Not sharing that. Um, but we are having 
85, across the three years, we've been live for three and three and a half years for some of our programs. Most of them have launched within the last two years. We have above 85% renewal rates on all of our, um, on most of our membership programs. And so it's a really healthy business. And so where I want to kind of think about that next is, okay, great. You, you know, you serve a magazine to them on a monthly or quarterly basis. You have access to our digital websites. But what more can our brands do for these users? And I think that's a lot of where the shop can come in, right? And so right now, any, any one of our members has an exclusive discount to the shop. If you're a men's health member, you get 20% off at the men's health shop. That's nice. You know, you can pick from like 30 to 40 products and, and get a, an exclusive discount from them. But what happens when that, when that shop has hundreds of products from all of the brands that you love, right? That, that marketplace evolution can now expand our membership benefits. And now you kind of see how memberships are extracting more value from their membership and staying with us longer, driving LTV for our memberships business. But at the same time, you're having a bunch of different folks coming through your shop funnel who are now like, whoa, what's this membership? You know, I, I was just about to buy um, deodorant from Men's Health for 40 bucks, but I can get 20% off if I became a member. Let me learn more about Men's Health membership. And so I think both of those funnels, one, you have high intent users coming in directly to your shops to purchase because it's a credible place to buy and you have the product that they want. And you also have readers coming in through our, our um, obviously our digital websites and they learn about memberships. And I think you can use both of those funnels to help build a larger direct-to-consumer e-commerce business, whether they are individual transactions on our shops or recurring subscriptions on, on our memberships. And I know we are close to out of time, but last kind of question for you. Um, we had talked about kind of the membership exclusive of being a part of Oprah's, um, I guess, what is it, a live stream or a Zoom or something when she tied in the actual product of the yeah. planner. So there's like, I guess, can you talk a little bit about that kind of like exclusive benefits? I think for memberships, there's a lot of question around like, well, what am I getting, yeah. um, you know, besides maybe extra content, like what, like what else do I get as a member? Um, how are you linking those? Yeah, I think that was a great example and it was one in which really allowed for us to accelerate what I was just mentioning about bringing those two groups together and figuring out how one can really lift the other. Um, so when we launched the Oprah Daily uh, brand and membership in March of last year, uh, we also wanted to build an e-commerce business for her and her brand. And so one idea that we had was around building this um, monthly undated planner, where every day, if you want, you can go into the planner and you'll have an intention from Oprah herself. She literally looked at every single page of this and sent emails at 3 o'clock in the morning. Amazing. I can't believe it, but uh, made the product so much better. But uh, she, you know, every day you open up the planner, and, and it helps you really bring more intention to your life. Um, get more out of every single day, um, have more positive thinking. And so this was a great product. It aligned with her brand and her kind of image and, and the brand, Oprah Daily image that we wanted to be. And so when we launched membership, they were two separate products. But we thought that there was an opportunity since membership are probably the 1%, 10% of people who love your brand. And then you have the folks who are buying the planner, probably significant overlap with those people. And so we programmed a monthly uh, Zoom session with Oprah where she picks 30 people to join her on a Zoom session um, from the membership group. We call them Oprah Daily Insiders. They bring them into the Zoom class and they actually go through the planner. So in January, you have month one. They talk about the intention. They all give their own personal stories. 
Um, and I think in the first few sessions that we did, we had over 8,000 members join those classes. And now, if you don't have the planner, well, you don't have the tool to actually participate in this session. Whether you can obviously join the session, but it's not going to be as valuable without it. And, and then for planner buyers, you also have this opportunity to join a class with Oprah. And so we thought there was significant overlap to create this content, membership, commerce opportunity with this particular product. It's our most successful product to date. Um, and so when we saw that happen, we thought, okay, one, how do we do this again with Oprah? And so come next year, we're really working on planning for another product and another, to, to be the tool for her 2023 class schedule um, for Oprah Daily Insiders. And then obviously with the portfolio mindset, how do you replicate this across the portfolio? And I don't think it'll be as easy as you can do it for Oprah Daily because she is um, a genius and, and her audience absolutely loves her. But I think you can figure it out um, through testing and learning and, and other experiments as to, you know, can we do this for women's health? Can we do this for Cosmo, et cetera? So that, that was something we're super proud of. Awesome. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of the live podcast. Thank you so much for joining yeah. us. Thank you. Thank you to our audience for being so awesome. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Digiday podcast. Thank you to everyone for listening. And please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. You can even rate us and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts if you like. We'll be back next week with another episode. 